You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gccugene.org. The late minister, Robert Farrar Capone, said the Reformation was a time when people went blind, staggering drunk because they had discovered in the dusty basement of late medievalism a whole cellar full of 1,500-year-old, 200-proof grace, bottle after bottle of pure, desolate scripture that would convince anyone that God saves us single-handedly. The Bible is a message of God's grace from beginning to end, and the Epistle of Romans is one of those letters that makes the gospel of grace explicitly clear. Drinking 200-proof alcohol would wreck you and could even kill you, Drinking from the fountain of grace we read about in Romans will do the same thing. The 200-proof, pure, free, unfiltered gospel of grace that takes you right where you are will put our life of sin and rebellion to death while bringing forth a new man, unbound, unchained, to live a truly free and transformed life under a perfect king. Martin Luther said, Romans is the chief part of the New Testament and the purest gospel. He said that every Christian should not only know it word for word, by heart, but also that they should occupy themselves with it every day as the bread of the soul. John Calvin stated about Romans, if we understand this epistle, we have a passage open to us to the understanding of the whole of scripture. Taste and experience the power of God for salvation for all who believe, the 200 proof strength of the gospel in Romans. Go ahead and grab a Bible and open to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1. Since we are starting a brand new series this morning, this morning we're going to do an overview of Romans, and the sermon bumper helps with that. So i also like to thank the team of people that helped put it together, uh, Daniel and Zach and Adam Delph and all those guys that helped out with it. So Romans chapter 1, if you guys would go ahead and open your Bible. If you don't own a Bible, Please take a Bible from our Connect table at the back of the room. It's our gift to you. We would love for you to all have a Bible. Let me say this. We're going to be moving at a quick pace today through this entire letter. And so we're going to do a whole overview of Paul's letter to the church in Rome. So we're going to move quickly. So if you're scrolling on a phone, you're going to be scrolling quickly. If you have a Bible in hand, you're going to be flipping quickly through it. So that's where we're going to be at today. And today... We're going to, like I said, do a complete overview, and then we're going to hone in at the very end of this on Romans 1, 1 through 7. So with that, let's take a moment and pray. Father, we recognize that you are good and that you are faithful, that you are holy, and that you are just. We recognize that you are full of grace and truth, that, Father, all you, you are the fountain, the eternal fountain of truth and goodness and righteousness and beauty and glory. We praise you that we serve a God who is transcendent, above and in control of everything, but also a God who's imminent, one who came and stepped in. Jesus, thank you for coming to earth. Thank you for experiencing loss, hardships, pain, joy, laughter, and everything that we experience. But thank you for living life so far different from how we live. Thank you for living life to the Father's glory. Thank you for living a life of beauty, of excellence, of purity, of purpose. Thank you for following and living out the life that we could not live, a life of pure obedience. 
Teach us today through your word what the gospel is and also transform our hearts and lives by it. We thank you for a gospel that takes us right where we're at, but we also praise you for a gospel that doesn't leave us there. We thank you that your gospel is the power to save us and the power to transform our lives through and through. Father, we pray for Jerusalem today as they go through pain, as they go through confusion and everything that is happening there to them. Our ultimate prayer for them, Father, is that the same for everyone in this world, that they would come to know your son and what your son has done. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you have spoken and we get to know who you are because of it. Teach us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Romans chapter one. Let's start off here though. If you're wondering what the magnum opus is for the Beach Boys, it's their famous song, God Only Knows, or Good Vibrations. If you're wondering what the magnum opus is for the Beatles, it's a day in the life. If you're wondering what the masterpiece is for NSYNC, it was Bye Bye Bye. For the Backstreet Boys, it was I Want It That Way. If you're wondering what the magnum opus was for George Strait, it was Amarillo by Morning. And for Garth Brooks, it was The Thunder Rolls. For Coldplay, it was The Scientist. Just to show that I'm cultured and diverse, for Missy Elliott, it was Get Your Freak On. For Bob Dylan, it was Like a Rolling Stone. Aretha Franklin, it was Respect. For Outkast, it was Hey Ya. We look at the magnum opus for Steven Spielberg, people would say, that his greatest movies, The Schindler's List. Next to that would be Saving Private Ryan. If we look at Shakespeare, it would be Hamlet. If we look at Jonathan Edwards, great pastor and theologian, it would be Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. When I say magnum opus, what I'm referring to is the person's greatest work, their masterpiece. And it is all across the board stated that Paul's magnum opus, the author of the epistle to the church in Rome, is this letter itself. It's his greatest work. It's his masterpiece. It's not to say that it sits above any other part of God's word because all of God's word is authoritative. It's just to say this is Paul's lengthiest work. And what it is, is it's Paul's thorough, systematic explanation of the gospel. And what we have to see in this is that Paul is laying out a rich doctrine and rich theology. And it's not abstract. He spends the first 11 chapters in this letter unpacking truths of who God is. Truths of what God has done and provided in in Jesus. Truths of who we are in light of those truths. And then, not until the 12th chapter do we start really getting to the imperatives, the commands of how we live. And, And you can't miss that or else you misunderstand Christianity. Christianity doesn't start with, hey, go and do this and do this really well. And if you do this really well, here's what you'll get in light of it. Even as Chris was saying a minute ago, we are so accustomed to earning. If you want a pay raise, work harder. If you want a promotion, work harder. If you want good grades, put the work in. Then we come to this. Paul's spending the first 11 chapters telling us of the richness of God's grace, telling us how God saves us, telling us all this. And then he says, now, None of this is abstract. Because of all this, and because of the gospel, and because of who you are, this is how you live. But don't start there. That's what the world does. That's why we sell so many how-to books. That's why we sell so many 
self-help books. Here's what you need. If your marriage is struggling, this is what you need to do. If you're struggling with parenting, this is what you need to do. If you're struggling knowing what to do with any decision in life, this is what you need to do. Paul, and the gospel starts with, no. Here's who God is. Here's what he has done. Here's who you are in light of that. You don't have to spend the rest of your life trying to figure out who you are and how to make yourself someone. You start with God. We're going to look at anthropology, which Romans does, the study of humans. And we have to start with the creator of humanity, God himself. Let God shed light on, here's who I am. Here's what I've done. Here's who you are in light of this. And here's how you live. And so that's what we're going to be looking at. Paul arguably the greatest theologian in church history. It said that he likely had four, that, that, that he spoke four languages, but had the entire Old Testament memorized, which isn't unheard of considering that most Jewish boys by the age of 10 have memorized the first five books of the Bible. So Paul, a man who probably spoke four languages, a man who was a Roman citizen, but also a man who was Jewish, who wrote this letter, is very accustomed with Judaism, with Gentiles, with Rome, with everything that's going on, and knows how to speak the gospel explicitly clear, both to the Jew and Gentile. So we're going to be diving in. Like I said, we're going to be covering a lot of ground as we look at Paul's greatest work. So our structure is going to be this. Who is God? So as we work through Romans, it's going to be who is God? Chapters one through three. Again, everyone wants to start with, tell me what I need to do. Or the world of self-discovery says, hey, you need to go on a self-discovery just to figure out who you are. Like go on a journey, figure that out. Well, you need to start with your creator. Who is your creator? So one through three, we're going to be looking at that. Who is God? What has he done? Three, five through 11, we're going to be looking at what has God done specifically in Jesus Christ? And then from there, we're going to look at who we are in light of that from Romans 5, 11 through chapter 11. Now, who is God? What has he done in Jesus? Who are we in light of that? And then from chapter 12 onward, now what do we do? In, in light of who we are, how do we live? And so we're going to be looking at that. That's going to be our breakdown. If you're wondering how we're breaking it down, that's what we're going. If you're wondering what the big motif, the big theme is of Romans, it's this. God justly justifies sinners through faith in Jesus. So the big motif, the big main point, Paul's big theme that he's unpacking through all this is that God justly justifies sinners through faith in Jesus. If you summarize it with one word, which I would encourage you as you start reading books of the Bible, start trying to say, if I had to summarize this book in one word, how would I summarize it in one word? And then what would one sentence be? One word would be justification. What is justification? It means this. If you're, if you're signed up for the gospel leadership cohort, I'm, I'm, I'm helping you out ahead of time. Justification is that you are legally declared righteous by God. So God legally declares you in his sight for all eternity righteous, which means this. It's just as if, so justified, just as if you had never sinned in the eyes of God. But also, that's one side of justification. The other side is this. It's also just as if you had lived a perfect, obedient life to God. So to be justified before God, it's, it's to be seen as just as though you've never sinned, but also just as though you've lived in imperfect obedience to him. Why? 
because that life of Christ was given to you through faith in Jesus Christ. So grab your Bible, and we're going to move quickly. I want you guys to read with me. Romans 1, verses 16 through 17, okay? I'll let you turn there. I'm reading in the ESV. For I am not ashamed. Wow, guys. Uh, read out loud with me, all right? Bad, bad instructions, bad communication. I'll own that. Bad listening. You guys own that. All right, here we go. <clears throat> for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Good job. That's Paul's thesis statement. Scholars all across the board would say, this is what Paul's getting at, and, and then he's going to spend the rest of the letter unpacking it. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. The power of God? That's weird. Why? Because that statement would, would, would seem so far out there to someone from Rome. Because power was seen through military force. Power was seen as when we go into a village or a town, we overthrow it with the strength of the Roman army. And then we take over that town. Not only would we take over that town, but we will take over the God of that town and we will add them to our pantheon of gods as Romans. So you're telling me that, that the power of God is seen through a man emptying himself out and hanging on a cross? That's foolish. That's weak. So they would say that, 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 that doesn't show strength at all. Even the philosophers were all about power, but your power wasn't how much knowledge you can obtain to have power and strength over someone intellectually. It was all about power. You can look at other religions, though. You can look at Islam and Allah. Did you know that in Islam and for Allah, that for him to leave his throne would be him giving up deity? that he would no longer be powerful. He can only be transcendent and powerful if he sits on a throne. Makes no sense for them. Yet our God gives up his throne gladly to come to earth, empty himself, to hang as a criminal on a cross, to give his life as a ransom for sinners. What? And God to say, that's where you see my power. You see, power has become an ugly word for us, but Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for everyone. For in it, the righteousness of God, we need to stop there, the righteousness of God. The Greek word there is dikaiosune, which means God's holiness, God's righteousness, God's justice. That is a noun that describes God. God is that eternal fountain from which all righteousness and goodness flows. God's not doing good things to become that. He is that. So that describes God. It says the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, listen to this. The righteous shall live by faith. That's an adjective now. Describing you and me, those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You have to see this. When a word that is used to describe God, dikaiosune, righteousness, is then used to describe us, dikaios, the adjective, whoa, a word that describes the almighty, all-powerful, holy, and just God is now being used to describe who we are? How do we get that? Faith. Not works, not actions, faith in Jesus Christ. God sees us 
how he sees his son because his son's righteousness is given to us. This is the thing that gets Paul excited. But here's the problem, and, and Paul's going to show this. If, if, if I go, man, you guys are all saved. Like you're saved by grace. You're like, okay, from what? I'm, I'm a pretty good person. I'm pretty awesome. I don't know that I need to be saved. And so it doesn't have a lot of meaning if you think that you don't need any righteousness because in and of yourself, you're a pretty righteous person. Then it's the gospel message that we call good news. Say good news. Say good news. news. Okay, I just want to know if you guys can talk because if an amen flies out every now and then, it's not, you're not going to get beat up. So the gospel is good news. If someone ever comes to you and you're sitting in this room and you're not a Christian or you are a Christian and they go, what's the gospel? You guys say, good Good job. It's good news. But it's, it's only good news if there's bad news. And that's what Paul gets into. He immediately, look, look, look right after that of verse 18, for the wrath of God. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation for all. It's beautiful. God's righteousness is given to you. So you become righteous for the wrath of God. <laughs> that's where he goes next. Whoa, 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 Paul. I liked where you were at and you're bringing it in here. What is Paul doing? Paul is showing something, something that we need to understand is that in order for God to be just and righteous, God can't let disobedience and rebellion and unrighteousness slide. He wouldn't be a just God. In fact, Psalm 5, 4 says, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. Proverbs eleven twenty one says, assuredly, the evil man will not go unpunished. So how does how does someone who is not righteous become righteous through faith in Jesus Christ? How does someone who's not holy dwell in the presence of a holy God? The truth is you can't until that God makes you as holy as he is, which only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. What has to happen first and what you have to understand is God's wrath is for everyone who has not placed their trust and faith in Jesus Christ. Because he's just, because he's good, because he's going to punish sin, that's where Paul starts, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So what Paul's going to do, and we're going to see this throughout the letter, is he's, he's explicitly unpacking the gospel now. So, and he's saying, you have to start with God's wrath. You have to start with God's righteousness. You have to start with that man is sinful. And then he's going to start answering questions, and he will even do that. He'll ask rhetorical questions. He's going to start answering questions that we have. Well, what about the person that lives in, in a jungle somewhere out there that's never heard of God? And Paul's like, I, I got you covered here. Anyone by my own natural revelation of seeing the beauty of this world is without excuse. It cries out the beauty of God. In chapter two, he says this, therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. So both by God's natural revelation, we are without excuse, but also as soon as you cast judgment on someone else, then you have proven yourself that you have a moral conscience and a standard of right and wrong. That's why I don't believe that atheists exist. I know that sounds offensive if you're here and you're an atheist or you're listening, but let me explain. I have never met an atheist that lives consistent to their worldview. 
Richard Dawkins even says that there's nothing in this world, no evil, no good, everything is blind, pitiful indifference. In, in other words, we're just DNA. We're protoplasm that, that is just operating and spitting things out. There is no good, there is no bad. Then he goes on to say, here's how you live in light of that. Here's what's good, here's what's evil, here's what's right, here's what's wrong. All sorts of statements like that. And every other atheist I've, I've ever met, they have a standard of right and wrong, of good and evil. Where does it come from? Paul would say, that comes from your image, created in the image of God, who is moral, and who has given you a moral understanding of right and wrong. So all men is without excuse. We're going to skip 13 there in chapter 2. We're, we're going to keep cruising. Chapter 3, what about the Jewish people? Paul's audience, both Jew and Gentile in Rome. What then? It says in verse 9 of chapter 3, what then? Are we Jews any better off? He says, hey, I'll help you out. No, not at all. We have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. I don't want, I want to be sensitive here. I, I am pro-counseling and, and have dear sisters and friends that are in the world of counseling. But let me explain this. Secular counseling will only offer up a Band-Aid. As uh, one of our pastors, Brad, said this morning, secular counseling is somewhat like trying to treat cancer with pain medication. And here's what I mean. Counselors typically are not going to talk about the doctrine of sin called homardiology. They're not going to talk about that. They're not going to say that your greatest problem in life is that you're under the curse of sin. Your greatest problem in life is that there's something wrong on the inside. And so all of these tactics and techniques and all these things that I'm offering you can't fix the greatest problem is that you inside of you are in rebellion against your creator and what you need is to be in right relationship with him and be infinitely loved by him. And if that's not talked about, then everything else we're addressing is just surface level stuff. When, ex when explicitly unpacking the gospel, Paul goes after this, there's a holy God and you are unholy. That has to be addressed. That's the problem in the world. You sit down in any counseling session, and I'm like, tell me what's going on, tell me what's going on in your marriage. This is what happens. Boom. Instantly. No one ever goes, you know what's wrong? I'm a sinner. I'm in need of grace. Boy, I'm really screwing things up, right? I have, ne I have never heard that. That would be awesome. Some of you guys might try to spit, might try to come in next time with that, okay? That'd be great if you're actually being honest, but I've never heard that. Almost every time, it's this person's the problem. Paul says, we're all under sin. He goes on to say in chapter 3, verse 20, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Okay, so there's this problem inside of me. God gives his law. Great, I'm going to use the law to try to fix what's inside of me. The problem is, is the law is good. He, he, he's about to say, what do we do then? Do we just get rid of the law? He's like, no, by no means. God's law is good. You are just incapable of keeping it. You're incapable of doing it. You're incapable of following it. We need a rule follower. One far better than the best rule follower in this room. Far better than the Pharisees. His name was Jesus Christ. He kept every rule. We need him. We need to come in and fix what's wrong in here. Doing all these external things aren't going to fix our problem. Well, isn't there like, there's some good people, right? Like you've heard of Mother Teresa, you've heard of some of these people, like th th there has to be some good people. And, and, and just to be clear, Paul unpacks Psalm 53 and Psalm 14 to let you know, hey, there's no one good, not even one. <laughs> you go, so he goes on to say 
In 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, there's that word justified, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to receive by faith. Let's read it again, and then you tell me where we're at in this, okay? Okay, so God's holy, we deserve his wrath, we've all sinned, we're under the curse of sin, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. It's all a work of God and his grace and his gift that he has given, that he has done. If you want to know how do I become right with God, you can't adhere to the law. You can't measure up to the standard. And so God put forth his son to bear his wrath so that we could be justified in him. Again, that word justified is a word describing what God has done to us in Christ Jesus. Dikaio, now it's verb. That's what God has done. That's who we are. 26, it says, God did this. It was to show that he might be just and the justifier. Remember our motif that God justly justifies sinners through faith in Jesus. So God being just and the justifier does this to the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 28, for we hold that, listen, that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Okay, so here's where the question leads in verse 31. Do we overthrow the law by the faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So if you understand this properly and you understand what God has done in Christ Jesus, you don't say, all right, God, here's your law. I'm getting rid of it. That's called antinomianism. means that you're anti-God's law. Let's do away with it. Paul's like, no, no, no. It's the most freeing thing ever because now you can strive to live a holy and pure life, not because it'll make you holy and pure, but because you're already that. Because God has made you that. It changes the whole motivation for how you live and your motives for living that way. Well, how did this come? Like, like did God change in the New Testament that now he's this God of grace? through faith? No, no, no. Paul, Paul, Paul's got you covered. Chapter four. He says this. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. It's always been by faith. Abraham believed righteousness. All right. Verse 10. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after though, Paul? He had been circumcised. Uh, it was not after, but before he was circumcised. He was circumcised because he had already been credited as righteousness by God. Keep reading. He had received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without, circum- uh, all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. Who? Both the Jew and the Gentile. Everyone. It's for everyone who believes Paul became the, uh, 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 we are grafted into Abraham and his family through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 12, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Okay, great. We get it, but now we got to keep it, right? So I get it. God brought me into his family and he did that by grace, but now it's up to me how I stand, how I live and making sure that my life is this way. Paul's got you covered. Chapter five, verse two. Through him, Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Grace brings you in. Grace keeps you in. Grace sustains you. Grace, grace, grace. God's grace is what saves you and sustains you for all eternity. It's the grace that we stand in. Then Paul goes on to unpack. Remember when I said that we're all under sin? It's because this guy named Adam sinned. And because of that sin, Everything in creation was cursed and lived under the sin. But here's the good news. Just as Adam's sin and that spread to all humanity, read 
chapter five, verse 18, he, he, he says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. <clears throat> for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Old, old person in Adam, that's what you were born with. Christ puts that to death. New man in Christ is brought forth to live under the righteousness of Christ. Well, it, since it's all grace, chapter six, why don't we just sin so that grace can abound? Paul's like, I got you. What shall we say then? Verse one, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Verse six, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. You wouldn't continue to live under the mastery of sin and live that way because that's not who you are anymore. You don't Try to live a pure life so God sees you as pure. You live a pure life because God sees you that way. Then we get into chapter seven. We're going to jump over there because Paul addresses something that I'm so thankful he does. In chapter seven, especially in 15 through 25, he's, he's talking and we're brought in on his conversation. So imagine you're journaling and you're writing down a lot of the stuff maybe you wouldn't want others to read. We have access to Paul's right here because then we ask, well, then why do I still struggle with sin? If, if you're anything like me, I hate the sin in my life and wish I could be done with it once and for all. There's a wrestle that exists. Paul shows us. He gives us insight that. He's like, I know what I'm supposed to do, but I don't do it. I want to live this way, but I can't live this way. And so there's this wrestle that is taking place. Wrestling for Christians. Listen, if sometimes you feel like Christianity is two steps forward and three steps back and you're wrestling, the wrestle is a good thing. Giving way to sin is not. And Paul, under unpacking this, he says in verse 24 of chapter 7, he's like, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he, he, it, he goes right back to it. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Though I'm simul uses et peccator, simul, simultaneously sinful and simultaneously justified all at the same time. I'm a, I, I'm, I'm a saint who struggles with sin. I'm also justified before the eyes of a holy God. Both of those are a reality that we live in. And because of that, he says there is, in chapter 8, verse 1, now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. You see, the gospel speaks to Dr. Timothy Tennant, president of Asbury Seminary, says this. The gospel speaks to shame, fear, and guilt. How? You see, when sin enters, in Genesis chapter 3, we see all three. First, they sin and they go, I'm naked, feel shameful, and they want to hide. And then they hide from God because it says they're afraid. And then God says, you've broken the law. And so there's guilt. At the beginning, Paul says, therefore, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? You see, in our Western society, we understand guilt a lot better than shame because we live very individual lives. But one lady said, as she was sharing the good news in Tanzania, she talked about the guilt that we have and the way that Christ sets us free from that. And she said it just went over their head. They couldn't connect. And she said, as she spoke, to the shame that Christ endured when he was beaten, when he was spit on, when he was flogged and publicly ridiculed, that hit him. Because they live in a community and they understand what shame is and what it is to be publicly shamed. And they go, whoa, I get it. Christ endured that kind of shame so I wouldn't live and wallow in shame anymore. Also, Christ endured the punishment of wrath that we deserve so that I could be guiltless. You're not more right with God whenever you fall into sin and you're like, man, God, I'm really hating myself. Hope you see all my regret and self-loathing of myself. I hope you're impressed with that. God's response is, I'm impressed with my son's work that set you free from all of that. 
Repentance is turning away godly grief and conviction and recognizing your great need for Jesus, but staying in sin and wallowing in it, that's not from God. Likely from the enemy, but not from God, because there is, therefore, look, in the future, no, right now, right now, there is no condemnation for you that are in Christ Jesus. Right now. And because of who God is and what he's done in Jesus, look at who we are now. Chapter 8, verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The gospel dresses shame, guilt, and also fear. Why would there be fear? If you live in this life as though everything in life is going to be taken from you or added to you, punished based upon your obedience, nah, the fear is gone. God's love is steadfast because of this. There's a relational identity that you can't change. You're a son or a daughter that cries, Abba, Father. And because of this, he says in verse 38, for I am sure that neither life nor death nor angels nor rulers nor anything present or things to come nor height nor death or anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I, you, you, you maybe hear that, you maybe read that. My prayer through the power of the Spirit is that you would actually receive that, that there's nothing in creation for you who are a child of God that could ever separate you from his love. It's infinite, it's unchanging, and it's unwavering, and it's not based upon your performance. We get into chapter nine. What do we do with Israel? What do we do with God's sovereignty? Since I'm running out of time, I will say this, that Paul unpacks some really difficult things in chapters nine and 10, but he does this and he does it so well. He says that God has always had a people. There's always been a true Israel, those who would trust in the Messiah to come and those who have. Just like today, there's also the true church. There's those that profess with their mouths, but lives are lived completely contrary to what it is. We would call this nominal Christianity. We see it in the South. Greg Allison, a professor at Southern Seminary, when asked, what is the biggest problem in the South to this day? This is what he said. The biggest problem with us in the South is unregenerate deacons in our church. And people were like, what? Yeah, he's like, men that are deacon in churches to only be that because of the social status that they have because of that. Their lives are lived contrary. There was no social status for Paul to give up everything to follow Jesus. He would have brought so much shame and dishonor to his family. There was no social status to join Christianity in the first century, where you would be ridiculed by the Jews, you would be mocked by the Gentiles. In chapter 12, we see this. He says in verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The rest of this is Paul is telling the church what it looks like to live in light of who you are. This is what you do. It matters to God how we live. It matters to God that we pursue holiness and, and, and we live out of who we are because to live inconsistent to who God has made us is us actually taking God's name in vain. That's not a swear word. It's actually our lives living an inconsistent way that, that displays God to the world that is contrary to who he is and who we are. So Paul's like, it matters. Because of the beauty of this grace, because of the beauty of what God has done in Christ Jesus, live. And when Paul says live, he means like you will be alive living this way. It, it, it's not going to suck the joy from your life. It's going to actually increase the joy in your life. Let's jump back over to Romans 1. And let me encourage you with this today. Saints will not faint. If you leave out of here with anything, it's saints will not faint. This greeting might look interesting to us, but this is how letters were written in the first century. We don't start with, uh, dear Allie, 
from husband or Rick, they started off with Paul, who you are. And he says, a servant, a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So Paul is an apostle set apart for the gospel, which he promised beforehand to the prophets in his holy scriptures. It's always been the gospel. It's always been a coming Messiah. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Christ Jesus, our Lord. What is that? Jesus is both fully human and fully divine. Jesus' Jesus's voice changed. Jesus went through puberty. Jesus sneezed. He got illnesses. He got sicknesses. He knows what it is to be fully human, but he was also divine, fully God, which is why that, what we need in a substitute is just that. We need someone who is an eternal, perfect sacrifice, who's lived a perfect human life on our behalf to present that on the cross as a sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable, and then give us that through faith in him. That's what he does. Let's keep reading. And the more we understand that as a saint, you will not faint. You will not grow weary trying to earn the favor of God that he pours out on you constantly. Verse five, through him we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. What kind of obedience is Paul trying to bring out to the church in Rome? The obedience of faith. You got to see that. That's awesome. Paul's like, my work is so that you would have obedience of faith, faith in Jesus for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to those who to those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at what he says here. Including you who are called to belong to Jesus, you will grow faint, tired, and weary if what you are trying to do is prove yourself in this world. If you are trying to belong, every one of us wants to belong. We have something in us that wants to belong. Sadly, as we're gonna see, this world is telling young people, hey, if you want to belong, you need to make all these changes, sexual changes, all sorts of changes. If you do all this, then you're going to belong. We're selling young people a massive, horrific lie because the belonging that people need is to belong to Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying, hey, you're not, you won't faint. As a saint, as one who belongs to Jesus Christ, that's what you need. To all those in Rome who are loved by God, the more you understand that you can't increase God's love for you, that it is burning hot, that he is crazy about you with his love for you, you're not going to grow faint. The one who grows faint and weary, even Martin Luther himself was trying so hard to earn God's favor, and he finally understood, I have it. And then he says, who are loved by God and called to be saints. Hear this, we're not Catholics. Called to be saints presently, not those loved by God and will someday become saints. If you've placed your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, saints means holy and set apart. That's who you are. That defines you. That will never change. You're not going to become more saintly or less saintly based upon what you do. You have the perfect holy life that's been given to you. You are a saint who's loved, who belongs to Jesus Christ. Hear this. If you hear nothing else, through faith in Jesus Christ, you belong. Through faith in Jesus Christ, you're infinitely loved by God. Through faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you're holy and set apart. That will never shift, change, or be altered. And then he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Peace. God doesn't offer a peace where he pulls the rug out. Oh, I saw what you did. <sighs> Gone. No more peace. God offers a true lasting peace that is sustaining. Because what he says is that your soul needs to be made right with me. And it is. And you'll never be made wrong with me. Because all the wrong you have done, my son endured for you on the cross. 
you have my everlasting peace. You will not be at war with me. You will be my loved child who belongs to my son, is set apart, and you will have a peace that surpasses all understanding, that sustains you. In the midst of storms in this life, you will know I'm not punishing you, but I'm your gracious Father who gives you peace and love consistently. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this beautiful letter that we have. Thank you for the beautiful message that this letter unpacks, the gospel. Thank you for giving us what we don't deserve. Let it change our lives and turn our church family upside down. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.